0: So our sermon text this morning, as we are working our way through the book of Romans, is Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Romans 8 has been called by many commentators and pastors and Bible scholars, perhaps the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the entire Bible. Now, I don't think we should really divide out God's word like that because all of it is God's special revelation to us. It is all important. But there are certainly special words, special promises of God that he pours out in his covenant love to his people in Romans 8. And so this morning we are in Romans eight, twelve through 17. You can find that in your worship folder if you want to follow along. With me. This is God's word. Let us listen. Paul writes So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, indeed, we are thankful for your word. We ask now that your spirit would come and attend to the proclamation, that you would speak truth into the hearts of your people and build them up and encourage them in their faith. And for those who know you not, Father, we ask that your spirit would bring conviction And clarity, clarity that through repentance and faith, they might know what it is to be saved, to be redeemed, to be your child. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, everyone, I believe, has some sense of wanting to belong, to belong to others, to belong to something or somebody And that makes sense because God did not create us to be isolated, lonely people living on the island of ourselves. In fact, when God created Adam and he placed him into the world and he called everything good, he said, there's one thing that's not good. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so he created Eve to be Adam's wife. We see that in Genesis 2. And thus God institutes marriage and family, a place where a man and a woman belong together in mutual love and where they can be fruitful and multiply and fill the world with a community that fellowships with God and knows him. And God put Adam and Eve into the garden with that purpose. And then came the fall. It changed everything. When Adam sinned and us, if we are human, which all of us are in Adam, it broke fellowship the fellowship that man had, the community that we had, the belonging that we had with God, it shattered that, communities, that that community where we're supposed to belong. And in the breaking of fellowship with God, also came hardship and ruin and struggle and difficulty in our relationship with each other as well. You see, sin has made any community endeavor a messy, imperfect, flawed, and failed affair. Now, as humans, we've always tried to find ways to fix that, to fix what in our hearts we know is broken. We try to manufacture peace. We try to build relationships. We try to make the world better by building better communities and relationships in our own lives to which we can belong. And yet as rebellious sinners, we try to do that apart from God because by nature we are apart from God. And what we find is it never, never, in the history of the entire world, it never works. And one way that people try to build this sense of belonging now is through authenticity. I say, well, if I am simply true to myself, I will find belonging. I will be in that community and cherished and accepted. And so through self-acceptance, I become what I was meant to be. I find my purpose and my place in this world. An example of this comes from popular author and speaker and podcast host, Brene Brown. She said, True belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. And our sense of belonging can never be greater than our self-acceptance. I'm going to be perfectly straightforward. That does not accord with Scripture. That is another gospel. That is not truth. That kind of gospel of self-acceptance and authenticity is what many, many people believe today. And even those of us who claim to be Christians, we are not immune to it. It is easy to fall in that kind of thinking because it is all around us. But it is not the true gospel. It is a dangerous lie that doesn't lead to life. It does not lead to peace and joy and hope. But it ultimately leads, as we see in Scripture, to death and condemnation. Because that is the penalty for embracing who we are by nature, which are sinners, enemies of God. But God shows us here in His Word this morning in Romans 8, that true belonging doesn't come from self-acceptance, but it comes in being accepted by God. Himself, And to be accepted by God means that we must follow after Jesus in faith and repentance. Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny, not accept himself, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That taking up the cross and the following of Jesus in faithfulness and faith That is what Paul is describing here in the middle of Romans 8. It is the resurrected life or the life of the Spirit, life as a citizen in the kingdom of Christ, or life, as Paul spells it out here, in the family of God. That life is the only one where our desire to truly belong is actually satisfied. We belong to God because He adopts us into His family through the work of His Spirit and the cross of Jesus Christ. And that means, as we observed last week, uh, and in Romans eight, that the Spirit of God dwells within us, as Romans eight eleven said. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You know, we often think of the resurrected life as a future life. When the body is resurrected from the grave at the appearing of Christ as judge, when he returns as king over all the earth and uh, fulfills all God's promises on that final day. And we dwell with him as his people in the new heavens and earth forever. Now that is true. That is true about the resurrection, but it is only part of it. It is the future part. See, there's two parts to this idea of resurrection. Because if you were in Christ, you're already resurrected. So what do you mean? I, I'm here. I haven't died as far as I know. That's, that's right. Your body has not died, but you were dead. You were dead spiritually. And it took the resurrecting power of God, the same spirit who rose Christ, to dwell within you, to raise you up to new spiritual Life, the first part of the resurrections already happened to you if you are united to Christ. You already have a resurrected spirit. But it's not complete. that resurrection. It's been inaugurated, but it's not what we say is consummated, not finished. The second phrase or phase of that resurrection is when our bodies will match, what we already are in our spirits by virtue of the grace of God. So, the body of sin, the flesh, as it's called here in Romans 8, the, the old nature, that will be risen and glorified and match what we already spiritually are in Jesus. And that comes when we belong to Christ. So until then, we have to deal with this body of sin, this flesh, and what are we to do? Well, our belonging to God tells us something about that. So the first thing we learn here is that belonging to God means you make war against what you were so that you can live as you are. Belonging to God means you make war against what you were before you came to Christ so that you can live what you are. Paul says in verses 12 and 13, he says, "So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live." Notice he addresses his readers here as brothers. He's talking to them like a family. He's talking about belonging. He's talking to everyone who trusts Jesus as their redeemer. He's talking to Christians. And so he says, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. Remember what the flesh is here in Romans and indeed in the Bible. It's who you and I were or are by nature, by birth, by by virtue of being a human. We are all descended from Adam. And because of that, we are all sinners by nature. That's the flesh. And what is a debtor? Well, a debtor is someone who has an obligation to fulfill. Something is owed. Something must be repaid. A debtor to the flesh is obligated to do what the flesh desires and demands. And what does the flesh desire and demand? It demands sin. It wants us to break God's law. It compels us to rebel against Him. And what happens when you do that? Well, verse 13 happens. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. It is certain. Death is the payment for sin. It's the just judgment of God against those who are hostile towards him and manifest that hostility by willfully, willfully breaking his law in what they say and think and do. Now, there are two parts to that death. The first, of course, is physical. Our bodies die. We know that. We feel that. The older we get. I'm at that point in life where you get out of bed and everything hurts all of a sudden. You're like, what did I do to my ankle? I like, didn't remember hitting it on anything. It just hurts. Our bodies deteriorate. They tell us, yes, sin has affected this world. We are dying. We all go to the grave. But there's a second part to that death. It is spiritual. That is that every person, before God does a work in their heart, they are cut off from God, from the source of all life. They are spiritually dead. And you can see why then this idea of self-acceptance really isn't a good gospel. It isn't good news at all. It's accepting the fact that, well, I'm dead. I am apart from God. I do not belong. I do not have His blessing. Feeling better about yourself and just being authentic to who you are in the flesh means you will die. You will suffer. You will face the holy punishment of God for rebelling against Him because that is what the true self is apart from Christ. But the gospel, the real gospel, the gospel of Christ frees you from all of that. It saves us from ourselves. God forgives our sin in Christ. And as Paul explains here, he adopts us into his family. And so now as Christians, by the spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the body, that old nature. And that results in life. So what does Paul mean by putting to death the deeds of the body? Well, first notice, it's not something that you do in your own strength, because you can't. You don't have the power to do it in your body. It is only through the life of the Spirit, as Paul says, by the Spirit, that you put to death the deeds of the body. It is the Holy Spirit of God that kills sin and all of its motions and desires in your life. You need the Spirit of God to enable you to fight against what you were as a sinner so that you can live what you are as a saint. And that means we have to trust in the work of God to do what He has promised to do. We have to have that earnest desire that God will deliver on His promises in delivering us from our own sin. We saw last week that when we are united to Jesus Christ in faith, there is no condemnation because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So killing the remaining sin in our lives starts, it starts with simply embracing that truth of the gospel. Remember, if you're united to Jesus, you're already risen with Christ. Since union with Christ means that what happened to Jesus happens to me. And since we're already risen with him to this new resurrected life, we live life now as believers. And that's why I mentioned earlier that resurrection has two parts to it. In Christ, because he is risen, Christians are spiritually risen with him. We are enabled by the Spirit then to live in that resurrection free from sin. But the body of sin still remains within us and it will die. But it will eventually be risen up and glorified and catch up to who we are spiritually at Christ's appearing. So killing sin then is embracing the the, the wonder of the gospel, of its truth and seeking to bring my body, what remains in me of sin, into conformity with who I already am spiritually. Now, the practical details of that are going to look slightly different for everybody because we all struggle with different sins. We all have different temptations that we're dealing with. Paul doesn't really lay them out here in this part of the Bible. And this isn't a call to sinless perfection. That doesn't happen in this life. Again, the resurrection's in two parts. We have the already, where we're spiritually risen, but there is a second part, and it will be complete when Christ returns. But until then, is that pressing on, seeking to bring our body into conformity with Christ. To who we are spiritually, and one of the ways we embrace that resurrected life then is by taking part in the life of the church through her worship and her fellowship, and making the use of uh, making use of God's normal means of His grace. Because as we worship together and work out our lives together, our faith together, as we pray together, partake of the sacraments and the preaching of God's word together. God's spirit brings our spirits into deeper conformity with Christ. We are obeying God together. We are being sanctified, set apart by God together. And so we encourage one another and we exhort one another. We hold each other accountable so that we might grow in our faith and put to death our sin. We pray for one another when we are struggling. We forgive one another when we've been sinned against. And we kill our sin together as one army of God. In other words, you kill what you were, a sinner, by living as you are, a saint as you belong the family that God has brought you into his family. And that is why belonging to God's family is so vital. You see there's no such thing as solo Christianity. You can never have, well, just Jesus and me. I don't need the church. Because Jesus is so united to your to his church that if you reject it, you're in a sense rejecting Christ. He is the head of the church and the church is his body. You can't have a body without a head. well you can, but then the body is dead. You need God's people. So belonging to God means making war then against who you were, and you do that by living as you are, as a Christian, as a child to God, of God, in the community of his people, a son or a daughter. Which brings us to the second thing we see here is that belonging to God means you're no longer a slave, but you are a son or you are a daughter of the king. Verse 14 reads, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are God's sons. Now, being led by the Spirit is exactly what was happening there in the earlier verses, it's making war against the sinful flesh. Notice again, it is the the agency, the instrumentality of the spirit that is doing this leading like a, a kind and compassionate and gentle shepherd. He leads us to pastures watered with mercy and grace in the gospel because we as sheep were all prone to wander as that great hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now that might not sound like it, but that prayer that that hymn is articulating, that is a battle cry for making war against the flesh. That is the Spirit leading us, and all that the Spirit leads are the children of God. So Paul continues, he says in verse 15, you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now a son or a daughter of God is who we are all originally created to be. You see, a slave is who we became because of our sin. But a son or a daughter is what we are supposed to be. Of God. And the gospel is what brings us back into that. Now, to understand this more clearly, it helps to go back to the beginning. So, in the beginning, God makes mankind into his image. To bear an image, at the very least, means you are related to someone. Adam bore God's image. That is to say, he was related to God. He was part of God's family. And so we read even in Luke 3.38 that Adam was the first person to be called a son of God. And that's what God made humanity to be. Sons and daughters of the creator, his creation. Now, the image of God, of course, was marred by the fall when Adam sinned and rebelled against God. And that, as we've seen, estranged all humanity to God. That estrangement, that cutting off is emphasized when God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden that he had placed them in to provide for them. No longer could they dwell with God because now corruption had entered into their being. The image of God was marred. They were no longer his children. Now, the same theme of a fallen son that is cast out continues with the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son. God rescued his children from slavery in Egypt. He gave them his covenant law and the promise of a land if they would keep covenant with him. And Israel, like Adam, was to reflect the likeness of God's image as a son of God. But like Adam, Israel was a disobedient son. The people followed after their own selfish desires. They pursued idolatry instead of worshiping the heavenly father. And so like Adam, they were expelled from God's presence for breaking his law. First through the Assyrians and then the Babylonians who who brought war and destruction upon Israel and the people were led forth into captivity just as all humanity is under the captivity, the slavery, the bondage of sin. Now, the prophets describe the horror of this rebellion and consequent judgment in vivid details. Ezekiel portrays it as a valley of of dry, lifeless bones, a graveyard. And Hosea sees it as pictures it as a disowned son. You see, that exile of Israel was just like the slavery, the bondage they experienced when they were in Egypt. So this rejection and this casting out of God's family into bondage is what Paul calls the spirit of slavery in verse 15. It is the slavery of sin that we saw earlier in Romans, in Romans 6. And it leads to, as he says here, fear. Fear of not belonging. Fear of being cast out. Fear of rejection. Not being part of God's family. Not receiving his blessing as a son or a daughter because we are a slave. We are outside of the family. We are slaves to sin. And a slave does not have the rights of a son. A slave could not receive the promised inheritance. But God isn't going to let His purpose to have a family, a people that belong to Him, whom He loves and whom love Him and worship Him. He was not going to let that purpose be defeated by mere human rebellion. And so God sent the Son, not just a son, but the son, Jesus Christ, to go and rescuing all the wandering sons and daughters. And Jesus took on then, who, Jesus, who was God himself, took on the full nature of man, yet without sin, so that he could live the perfect life we could not live and die the sacrificial death we could never die to pay the penalty that we have no ability to pay. And then he rose on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of the Father to assure that that redemption, that work was complete. The resurrected life, the new life had come. And that life brings us back into what we were created to be, into fellowship with God, our Father, as we are adopted and brought in. To his family. And here's how that gospel that God has so written through time and written upon the hearts of all his people. Here's how that makes adoption happen. Jesus is God's only begotten son through faith and the grace of God working in our hearts, drawing us to Christ. And by his spirit, we are united to Jesus. Paul says in verse 15, you receive the spirit of adoption. So united to Christ, then you have been adopted. You have received this spirit. Because again, what is said about Jesus can be said of all Christians. Since Jesus is God's son, you are a son or a daughter of God. You belong to his family. You're home. I mean, think about that word home. It's supposed to be, and generally speaking, it is a good, comforting word. Home is supposed to communicate protection and provision. It's the place where you go when you don't know where else to turn. A place where people know you and you know them. It's a place of belonging. And that comforting place of belonging for the believer is right by the Father's side. And we see that portrayed in these words, Abba, Father. Paul says that the Spirit who dwells within us as believers enables us to cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term for Father. It implies this, this warm familiarity, so much so that Jesus, God the Son, addresses God the Father in prayer, using that word. And you know what prayer in particular is recorded in the Gospels where Jesus calls God, the Father, Abba? It's in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 14. And Jesus prays this prayer, addressing God as Abba Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he is betrayed, tried, and crucified. It is in that prayer where Jesus is suffering so much sorrow and pain because He is about to willfully take the cup of God's wrath against our sins and drink it dry for us. It is in that moment that He says to God, Abba, Father. And now because of that sacrifice of Christ, we too, when united to Him in faith, have received the spirit of adoption and we cry out to God in our distress and in our sorrow, Abba, Father. Because in those moments of sorrow and struggle, that's where you really need to know you belong to a family. To be part of something bigger than just yourself. When you're struggling, when you're suffering, when you are sinning, You need a father to come and to hear your cries and to come to you and to heal you and to forgive you and to provide for you and to restore you to himself. That's what God does for you when you are part of his family. As an adopted son or daughter of God, you can call upon him to not act just as the almighty creator of the universe who he is, but to act as your father who knows you better than you know yourself. So in Christ, we're not just creatures in his creation and not just subjects of him as our king, but we are cherished members of his family. I don't know what You might be feeling at this moment in your life, maybe you feel you don't belong anywhere. And you're trying to belong. You're trying to fit into your family. You might be trying to fit into the church. You might be trying to fit into the world. And you're embracing this gospel of self-acceptance. That's not where we need to look. There's a better place to look. It is looking upon the nail-pierced hands and feet of Christ our Savior, and hearing those words, you have been adopted into the family of God. That's where we belong. In Christ, we're part of a royal household of God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And if you are a son of God, you are a prince. If you are a daughter of God, you are a princess. Which means... In closing, belonging to God, you have a royal inheritance. So verses 16 and 17, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says here that if you are a son or a daughter of God, you are also an heir, a fellow heir with Christ. So Christ's inheritance is the Christian's inheritance. And to understand this then, we must ask ourselves, well, what is Christ's inheritance? Well, literally, it is everything. It is this world. It is this universe. It is a kingdom. It is a family. It is all heaven and earth. It is the fulfillment of every one of God's promises to make all things new, to put all that is wrong right again, and to have a people for his name. That's Jesus' inheritance. And if you have the spirit of adoption, you belong to God's family, that's your inheritance as well. And the spirit of God is the legal witness. You see that? He bears witness to your spirit. Your inner self, who you are spiritually, that all that is Christ's, it's also yours. Christ's suffering resulted in great glory, the glory of a grand inheritance. And so united to his suffering through faith, believers are glorified in him. Now, suffering implies faithfulness. That's why he mentions that here. Because faith isn't just a one-time thing. It's not a prayer you say. It's a lifetime commitment to God, and it is portrayed through suffering. And indeed, sometimes we do experience suffering as believers. But it is through that comes the glory of the inheritance. In fact, we see that glorious inheritance pictured in the book of Revelation, and you know where we see it portrayed as a wedding feast. A feast at the king's table. A table where you and I are invited to sit if we've received this spirit of adoption. It's home. It's a family meal. A meal of all God's children enjoying the blessings of His providence forever. That is real belonging. When we are part of His family. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so to whom do you belong? Do you belong to the king? Do you sit at his table? If so, then make war on what you were. By living as you are. A child of God. Is God your heavenly father? Then in your sorrow and in your struggle. Cry out to him as your Abba father. You are no longer a slave of sin but you belong to a loving father and is Christ your brother, then you are heir with him. So sit, sit at the King's table, sit and dine with the King of glory and find rest in that glory. That is yours both now and forevermore. It doesn't involve authenticity. It involves faith and trust. Simple reliance on Jesus. It doesn't involve self-acceptance. It involves self-denial, which is repentance. Turning from my sin and turning to Christ. And it doesn't result in a false sense of belonging that doesn't last and never satisfies, but eventually leaves you feeling empty, dissatisfied, guilty, broken. It results in true belonging belonging to your God as his adopted child. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again and this glorious truth of the gospel that you make us your own so that we might belong to you for now and for all eternity. Let this truth resonate within our hearts as we go forth from this place as your children, rejoicing in what you have done And may we pour forth that love of the gospel to others who need it so that they might, too, belong to this great family. And one day when Christ returns and our bodies are resurrected and join what we already are in spirit, we will all cry out in worship, Abba, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.